hi everyone welcome to your episode 251 of the at percussion podcast i am ben charles and with me as always are ksenia kamyanovich hey everyone and casey cangelosi hey everybody Today is September 6th, and we are releasing this episode on October 1st. And Casey, I believe you are going to tell us what happened on October 1st in history, as well as give us a little PSA here. Yeah, we better do this public service announcement first. So just check this out. If you're entering like a comp composition contest and you're going to plagiarize someone else's composition and you're going to like put your own name on their work, Listen, the world is a crazy enough place that something can happen such that the judge of said composition contest could actually be the composer you're ripping off. So that composer and judge literally looked at this entry and said, wait a minute, I wrote this. And, you know, yeah, like, don't do that. That's like so dumb. <laughs> and I'm not <laughs> going to name names or anything, but it's important that people know this. And uh, yeah, so if you're, you know, young and thinking, oh, I got to get ahead and I got to get out there and I got to do something that'd be good for my career. No reward or award or prize is worth that. It just, yeah, the deficits from that will be far, far greater than what the reward might have been and you will definitely be found out quickly so i thought that was just too hilarious not to share yeah this this does sound oddly specific and if you're wondering <laughs> it, it is something that, that casey recently heard about someone doing and it, it wasn't one of casey's works and like we said uh, we're not naming any names here uh, <laughs> but just additionally i wanted to add that if if you do use something without the composer's permission even if it makes it through the, the contest, ultimately, I mean, if it were to get published, obviously issues would arise. And a very famous example of this is John Sari wrote a piece called, I think it's just called West Side Suite for mm -hmm. Lee Howard Stevens for Solo Marimba. And he used themes from Leonard Bernstein's West Side Story. And it was a very challenging work. Lee Howard Stevens learned it. And then there was like a letter from a lawyer involved and no one can play this work anymore. And it was actually an original work. He was just using the themes from West Side Story. It's not like he just ripped off, you know, some pre-existing suite and arranged it for marimba, uh, but problematic nonetheless. So yeah, just make sure you're-, you're Well, involved. and that's far less egregious than yeah. this. This is True. literally <laughs> just like, I might change a couple of notes in like a measure or two and then just put my name on it. Yeah, and it's it's funny, uh, William Mersch has this organization, organization called New Music Marimba and they've been behind commissioning I don't know, probably hundreds of marimba pieces that you've you've heard of. Uh, and uh, there's he said there's a clause now, and they call it the John Sari clause in the contract that says no you, will not use, you will not use another composer's work without their explicit permission because you, you can't do that. <laughs> so, you know, the piece is worthless if it can't be performed. So there you go. There you go. Well, also today, I've got another birthday for y'all, maybe a lesser known composer. She's certainly a very known composer, but maybe less so to percussionists specifically because she just doesn't have a ton of percussion rep. But on October 1st, we got the birthday of Pozzi Escott. That's P-O-Z-Z-I Escott, E-S-C-O-T. She was born in 1933. She's from Peru. She studied at Juilliard and she's authored a book called The Poetics of Simple Mathematics in Music, and she's also co-authored something called Sonic Design, The Nature of Sound and Music, and beginning in 1980, she's the editor-in-chief editor of a self-published music journal called Sonus. So she's written more than 30 articles, mostly published on her own journal, uh, in her own journal, and they uh, develop and discuss the relationships between music and mathematics. She starts teaching at NEC at 19, in 1964, and she's won McDowell Fellowships 1962 straight through uh, 1965. And I just wanted to read a little bit about her from a book called Women in World History, a biographical encyclopedia. And this author is John Hag, H-A-A-G. And he says, by 1960, she was... She was so much in demand that she wrote music only on commission. Although Escott quickly received great acclaim in the musical world, she refused to sacrifice her standards in order to have her works performed. For example, when she was commissioned by the government of Venezuela to write an orchestral composition for the 400th anniversary of the city of Caracas, 
she did uh, she did not score for the traditional uh, symphony orchestra. Um, she says, as a 20th century composer, I feel that orchestras are obsolete for they represent the culture of a hundred years ago and they do not fulfill the needs of our own culture today. Sands, the work written for this celebration is scored for saxophones, electric guitar, bass drums, plural, violins, and basses. So anyway, a composer you may not have known about uh, was her birthday today. What, that work was called Sands, you said? Yeah, Sands, like, like Sand. Oh, sands. Sands. Oh. Sands. Yeah, sands, like oh. desert. Yeah, That's I cannot what? find a recording of it. I could that not find a cool. shred of evidence <laughs> of its existence. Oh, man. Um, I did a little bit of research um, on her, and of course, I went into a rabbit hole of looking at probably some middle schoolers' prezi presentation, which literally said, she co authored everything with her husband, never won any awards. <laughs> That's 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 not correct. It's not correct. <laughs> but just to say, you know, don't go in there. Don't just copy a middle schooler's prezi into your own uh, dissertation, <laughs> people. Don't trust everything that's out there on the internet. Double check everything. Outing the podcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to say, I was shocked at what how little was out there about her, at least online. I mean. And I, I looked for her books. I mean, her books are, are hard to hard to get. I mean, it sounds interesting. Um, yeah, I was just kind of shocked. Um, she's been a professor at New England Conservatory, you know, since 1964. She's, a, you know, uh, emeritus now. But I mean, geez, that's a long career. And to, I don't know. May, and maybe she's one of those composers who who kind of miss the Internet wave. You know, we've I know we've talked about percussionists like that over the years that yeah if you didn't kind of catch the internet wave when it uh came up it, it's hard to get back on later but yeah i was just kind of shocked like why can't i why can't i find more about her yeah yeah, yeah agreed very cool thanks so much for sharing casey you betcha our uh, guest today is megan gillis megan is the principal timpanist of the spokane symphony and maryland symphony orchestra and she's also performed with the auckland philharmonia cleveland orchestra columbus symphony among others and she's also performed with the contemporary jug band bones jugs and transatlantic dance music group hess is more so welcome to the podcast megan gillis thanks happy to be here well, Megan, when I was when I was reading your bio, I saw this lines about bones jugs, and it just, I had something in my mind. I was like, I know that name. Where do I know that name? And I very quickly realized I actually went to University Benson, who is sort of behind that group, and I saw and like I like researched and I found some recordings of you playing with it. So for the the uninitiated, could you tell us? First of all, what is a contemporary jug band? And second of all, what was your involvement with that group? Um, so you, you said Cody Jensen, right? I like it cut out right when you said like, Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, okay. thought, yeah, yeah. Everything blinked, but yeah, I went to <laughs> Illinois Cody Jensen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, um, in grad school, I started busking and doing, um, like this xylophone thing just for like a summer gig and Cody had reached out cause they had a xylophone, uh, Tim, um, Berg had like left the group or whatever and they needed a xylophone player. Um, and uh, so I jumped in and just kind of like trial by fire, learned a bunch of like bluegrass, uh, traditional jazz, um, like folk music, intermixed with like green rags, which are like very much a staple in the percussion repertoire. But they've like kind of expanded it to do a little bit of steel pan, a little bit of like ragtime and then everything in between. So um, but it's just like, you know, it's a traditional jazz band, but instead of like uh the traditional instruments it's like we do have a string bass but then like cody's set is like totally very much like a spike lee like no spike jones uh spike jones uh trap kit of like uh car horns and noises and stuff and yeah i and saw also yeah. cody was playing if anyone's familiar with the instrument bones it's like it's like literally two i think it's like femurs from a calf or something like that you yeah and yeah yeah shin bones from a cow but yeah yeah, yeah. um I guess, well, there's oxbones too, but yeah, all that stuff. And um, what else? Is he, he like brought in conch shell. Like he brought in like the cage, the third construction, like that into like a pan tune. Like they've, they it's, found ways to like intermix the. If any, if anyone doesn't understand what we're talking about, it's very John Singer is all I can say. If you could imagine what goes on inside John Singer's head, that's what comes out. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. That's about right. <laughs> 
And so how long were you involved with that group? Um, I was there, I toured full-time with them for about a year and a half, and then I um, moved to Spokane to do orchestra stuff, and they're kind of still doing a little bit here and there, but they've also moved on. Uh, the bass player now owns, like, a venue in Urbana, and Cody's, like, about to be the mayor of Urbana, too. Like, he's running the Folk and Roots Festival, and kind of, they've kind of taken over the town uh, little by little, so they're doing uh, all kinds of stuff, and uh, we recorded two albums, uh, one of all of the, or not all of the, but five green rags, and then an album of original music that's like kind of in the same style, but with lyrics and, and all kinds of other stuff as well. So, so Megan, why don't you give us the standard issued COVID update with Spokane Symphony? Like, we just kind of have to ask everyone as sure. we're tracking the progress of this thing, what's uh, happening there? Uh, nothing. Absolutely nothing is happening cool. right now. Um, <laughs> we <laughs> we got laid off April 1st, and I'm on the orchestra committee, which uh, gives me a little bit more information of, of what's going on. But basically, right now, Washington State has one of the strictest um, uh, set of rules on live performances and, like, large gatherings. Like, there's absolutely no room for doing anything right now via, like, the state mandate. Um, but they are kind of starting to make exceptions, which like, it's like, um, it's a tough situation because the, like it snowed in September there last year. So like the, uh, the most safe thing to do is to play outside, but like, obviously that window is closing. Um, we canceled the season and are pushing it to next September, but I think everybody's hoping that some small things will happen. Maybe, you know, starting in January or March or I don't know. I'll take what I can get at this point. <laughs> Were you were you literally laid off or is it furloughed? Oh, yeah. Like a year. Okay, like um, your positions are gone. Like furloughed. Well, I guess. Yeah. yeah, I guess they would. I guess you'd call it like furlough, but yeah, it's just we got a letter that's okay. saying you know until further notice. Like this is right. this is where we're at. So what 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 are some of the things people are doing like in the meantime? You know, I mean, this is a conversation that we're kind of continuing on and off with with guests, and yeah. They go from everything from like, oh, nothing. People are relaxing to, you know, people are side gigging and teaching as much as possible. What are what are some of the things that you're finding musicians are doing over there in the meantime? That's a good question. Uh, I think I had heard that somebody got a real estate license. I mean, I haven't I haven't given too much. A lot of <laughs> a lot of people. Um, I think. Ksenia laughed really at that. Big. She thinks real yeah, estate no, is a joke. I, no, I think that's awesome, but it's that's very that's very oblique gig. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very oh, much. See, yeah, a lot of people teach, which like that's still going on. Uh, there's like three colleges there that a lot of people are um, at least adjunct at, and um, a lot of folks are like kind of this is their retirement gig. Like they've played for you know there's probably I don't know half a dozen people at least that have been there for 40 years. So like. And one of one person's been there for 50, so like they're at the end of kind of their um, long stretch of a orchestral career, and and this is just kind of you know something to keep doing to keep their chops up or to you know keep enjoying it and that kind of thing. It's not like um, you know they're basically retired in every other sense. So um, myself, I <laughs> went back to the East Coast. I actually was accidentally on the East Coast the minute that the country shut down, so I stayed on the East Coast with family and friends and have just kind of made it work here since I'm relatively familiar with the, the territory and, and how to survive. Um, but it seems everybody's kind of, yeah, it's, it's a mix of like either being on unemployment or like just totally abandoning music altogether and, sure. and, you know, thinking uh -huh. of the next thing. So, well, you seem totally happy. <laughs> you seem like <laughs> I mean, you're doing you great. Do? <laughs> what are you going to do? What a time That's to be alive. Good for you. That's awesome. That's really great. Um, I was checking out a lot of your videos, and especially, I mean, watching you play the xylophone is such a pleasure because you, I mean, I don't know, if you folks haven't seen this, you have to go look at Megan playing the xylophone because she literally stares into the camera and smiles. And it's a little bit of showing off of amazing skills. And also, it's just you're constantly smiling playing the xylophone and then it seems like you're that kind of a person because there's so many outtakes and bloopers on your Instagram uh, channel, which are just fantastic. Is this the kind of person you are? Or is xylophone your drug or what's what's going on? Why are you smiling so much with the xylophone? 
myself? <laughs> That's a great question. I took myself so painfully seriously when I joined Bones Jugs. I was like, we're making like a living doing music and like we're good and like we just, you know, we deserve the credit and I'm going to take myself seriously. And that like absolutely didn't work. Like we play the goofiest music and to like sit up there with a frown on is just like the biggest antithesis of like what like ragtime and the depression era stuff was. Um, so like I started making fun of myself and then that like, I saw that people liked that more and I was like, oh, well that's, that's fun to do. Like, let me just, I mean, I've played these rags so many times. Like, let me just find the stuff that makes myself laugh. And then um, it's mostly like my mom just started laughing at my like bits and then um, it snowballed. So um, yeah, it, the gimmicks are fun and they make more money. Like I'm busking right now in, in Cape Cod this weekend, which is why I'm outdoors. Um, and like here, like everybody hears with their eyes. So like the more you do like shtick and like interact with people, the more they're like, Oh, that's really good music. Or like, Oh, they're playing something that I know. <laughs> Stuff like that. So more know. sticks equals better music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's, a, there's another busker that plays he makes more money playing with like a horse mask on so he hates it but like you know whatever <laughs> i guess we're going out to make money <laughs> well hey, you're make doing more. real market <laughs> research there that's really I mean, valuable we, yeah. now we know why symphonies are failing <laughs> yeah. you don't have a yeah giant helmet on or whatever it is yeah um yeah i'll have to talk to our uh our development team about about some strategies about that so well <laughs> megan I, I had a question a while back we had we had casey's friend jim benoit on the podcast and i'm i'm so fascinated because to me in my practice like timpani playing is so unique versus snare drumming and two mallet marimba playing which are sort of similar uh, but the thing that I that I found is like with Jim, he does timpani and jazz vibes and you do, it seems, timpani and like ragtime xylophone. And like the, the connection I can make is that it's it involves a lot of ear training and theory on the fly, that sort of thing. And obviously with timpani, you're tuning and with improvisation, you have to be able to hear what you're playing without you know, getting ahead of time. So how do you how do you feel that timpani and ragtime xylophone meet up? How do they make sense together? That's a that's a good question. Uh, I didn't actually think that they were remotely related, um, but that is a good point. Like the ear training thing is something that I have done. Like I started percussion relatively late and like I started lessons relatively late when I got into percussion. Um, but like the ear training thing was something that I did like from being a kid, like wanting to learn how to play like queen songs or whatever on guitar. Um, so like th definitely those things I've um, worked on constantly. And like, even now, like, trying to figure out how to improvise um, new things. And, and also, yeah, with timpani, like the intonation bit um, as like, you know, orchestral music gets harder and harder, especially with um, movie soundtracks and that kind of thing. Like that's definitely the link of, if there is one um, of the two things. Cause I mean, technique, technique wise, like xylophone is beyond like way harder um, on my chops than, than playing, you know, five, one, a bunch of times in a Brahms piece or whatever, like, that's more of a, a touch and a like sensitivity thing than, than xylophone, which is just like raging note fest, um, 2020 or whatever, uh, whatever year it is. Um, I wanted to go back. Sorry. I'm really interested in your real world experience of, of seeing how people react when you're busking. Cause I think busking is a very, very valuable experience for uh, musicians, young and old doesn't matter. Um, but I'm really interested since you've done it so much, is it that we should go to a place like Martha's Vineyard or Aspen to busk where people have a lot of disposable income or should we be, is the New York city subway a good uh, idea or what what have you found is there like a peak hours or at night that we should do it how how do you see this um i've learned a lot over the past years um i did a lot in new york and i will say like if you um if you want to punish yourself a little bit definitely go to new york in the subway in the summertime because i've never been more sweaty and more gross and like <laughs> just risked all of the you know you don't know if you're going to make money at any given point but um, I had heard that, or I guess I just guessed that Provincetown would be a good place. And, and here is like very much a, um, like a, a lot, it's very expensive to, 
to vacation here and stuff like that. And people are very into the arts here. There's tons of shows on a normal year um, when there's not a global pandemic. <laughs> there's shows all over the strip and like everybody comes to like enjoy themselves, go to the beach and then like, you know, see entertainment in some form. And um, a lot of the bus crews that play here go to Key West, which is a similar area. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's that. And then um, with New York, it's like, anybody can busk and it's great if you're living there, but, um, it can be bad sometimes, <laughs> and especially with like the phone thing. Like people are less, they're, they're interested in like the next Instagram pic that they can get as like a tourist or whatever, or even as like a, um, a resident there. Like it's not, um, the community of like tipping is, is less, um, popular nowadays. I think in Europe, it's still pretty like, good but i've never tried it i've just heard tale from like student friends of mine um but i haven't tried oh, i guess i tried la once and that was that was a waste of time <laughs> but uh, i'm sure it's I'm sure it can be fine i was like on the walk of fame i had no idea what i was doing and it just seems like if you're not wearing a spider-man costume like it's um they're not they're not there for that so um maybe <laughs> i should try try some sort of marvel situation i'm not into the superheroes but i have heard that there are um, some popular ones, so maybe that's my next uh, next expense. <laughs> usually, people like people who like the Batman soundtrack are not into ragtime. Usually, fair. I do play the rag from the Joker, but no one has clocked that. Like, no one knows that it's like in the. It was that from the dance that he does on like the Bronx step. Uh, Everybody goes to the steps, but nobody knows the rag. So, where where was. It, it, where in Batman is that rag? I don't know if I remember. No, in the Joker. In, in the Joker. Oh, in the, the thing movie where he's Joker. like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he's dancing uh, on the steps. Oh, okay, or okay, okay. Yeah. I think Ksenia and I got in a fight once if that's actually like a Batman movie or not. Because I called, oh no, maybe that was a student of mine. Because I called it The Joker. And they were like, it's called Joker, not The Joker. And then we got in a fight. Was that I would have gotten with you in a fight for that thing, but it wasn't me. <laughs> that would have been you. <laughs> we could fight about that later. Yeah, well, later. Speaking, of, speaking of busking, I was going to ask, you need a license to busk, right? In, a, in most cities, don't you have to get a permit? Uh, in some places here, it's like very simple. Like you go to the police station. I don't even know if they check. Like I've never been checked for it. In New York, I s- auditioned for Music Under New York, but there are certain places that like nobody's going to tell you to leave. Um, or, you know, you can go long enough and, and nobody's going to walk by or whatever and it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, yeah, there's a fair number of, I think Chicago is pretty strict with permits and yeah, it definitely depends on city to city, which is not ideal, but, um, but you know, uh, but if you're wearing a Spider-Man ones. outfit, well, you just escape. Yeah. Yeah, you get the you get the web and stuff. That, that's right. what he does, right? Well, uh, yeah, I thought it'd be important maybe to tell, tell guests like do your googling before you before you just start. Uh, yeah, throw a hat on the street and juggle. Casey, Casey I was gonna ask, how's the busking scene in Harrisonburg, Virginia? You going out playing people stroll on the streets? It's hot. Yeah, people love that. Yeah. <laughs> Tips. Yeah. I might just I'd try to juggle maybe instead or something. Do something he's actually good at for a change. Ooh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> sorry, sorry, poisonous woman here. Well, maybe actually, Xenia, could you tell us, maybe you know, maybe you don't, what, like, the busking scene in, in European cities? Is it comparable to the U.S.? Is it better or worse? I mean, I, uh, I would know about... Serbia, sort of, I guess. Um, there aren't many rules and regulations in general in that country, and if they do exist, they're not there to be followed, but just to be mocked and ignored. So, um, I usually, like, if you walk down the main pedestrian street, you will see so many buskers, and they are, I mean, very, very rarely bothered by the police, and never anything uh, fancy. No, there's, I don't know about Croatia, Ben. <laughs> never been to this country. Yeah, Ksenia's from, uh, it's some B, B city, Belfast or something. <laughs> Is that it? Budapest, Bucharest, some of those. Yeah, one yeah. of those. Yeah, one of those. Or as Casey eloquently put it, Zargeb. <laughs> <laughs> That's also Podcast jokes. <laughs> My mission on this podcast is to educate you about that little region in the Balkans. No, but there is nothing. And I know a lot of my friends uh, would go out and just you just put a hat down and you play for as long as you like. And it does. Uh, people do stop and watch, actually. And it's not very Instagrammable there um, for 
I think it's good because people are still paying attention with their eyes and not through a lens, um, which is cool. Yeah. I did it in Boston once and I brought a snare drum with like a towel over it and I just did, you know, speaking of shtick, I just tried to make it stick trick focused and I made maybe $10, but it took, I, I was so exhausted. Like I was, I was so, ex I, you know, we, you don't play for hours straight, especially that kind of music, you know, like that type of thing. It's like those recital pieces we practice are, you know, a couple minutes long and uh, yeah, trying it for two hours like i i didn't i didn't go back i took my ten dollars and bought a coffee and yeah that was about it yeah that, i mean that, that's, i got i got asked to play at some old lady's birthday party one time they asked me to play marimba for an hour at a birthday party and it's uh -huh. like like i've i've practiced this instrument quite a bit but what rep have i what hour-long recital of birthday party rep have I practiced? <laughs> so i ended up just like mostly reading some slow Bach that, you know, it sounded good, but yeah. Yep. 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 Well, well I was going to ask Megan, you know, let's, let's talk about, let's talk about your audition. You know, a lot, a lot of people, I mean, so many people out there are, are just trying so hard to get on the audition circuit. They're trying so hard to win a job like you have. What's the story there? Can you tell us a little about, you know, what your first round was like and your second round and, you know, what you played in the final round, stuff like that. Sure. Um, auditions are a nightmare, and I congratulate everybody for trying. <laughs> um, I think it's the most frustrating thing about it is that just every time you never know what to expect. You always have to assume, well, you just have to go with it if, like, aid, like, the organization is just not prepared to do a well run audition, which is entirely possible at all levels. Um, but for my particular one that I won most recently, um, it was fairly straightforward. I mean, the job doesn't pay that well, so like it didn't have a huge turnout. And especially in the middle of the summer, it was also kind of a weird time. And it was also a one year, which is also a weird time. Um, and uh, so they had a two round audition. I think there was like 16 people there and they advanced like eight to the semifinal round. And um, it was behind the screen the whole time. Um, they asked on the list, they asked for three solos, which I will... <laughs> I, I will be changing that if I ever get out uh, into a different gig and and three. Uh, you said three. Yeah, three soul, three solos. Wow. As for the what, Carter what March, um, they asked for a solo of your own choosing, and then for a Vic birth etude, which they didn't ask. They asked for the uh, solo of your choosing in the first round, and then the other two they never asked for, which is like I made mute specifically for the March, like to work in an audition, and I was like all pumped about it, and then like never. Never again uh -huh. have I touched that what did you um, piece of work. Uh, I did Del a Delcluse, like, Etude 29, I think, is a classic, um, very popular one in auditions. <laughs> and, um, it's a, yeah, it's a bop, uh, as they say. And um, so I've done that one many times. And, uh, yeah, I think I just, yeah. I, um, and then they had sight reading in the second round, and they asked me to play Shalomo, which I couldn't, I, like, it took me until like 20 minutes after the round had happened that I was like, Oh, like that's what that was. It was the most random, I think thing they could have asked. Um, cause that's seen, Ernest block, right? Yeah. 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 We played it in at CIM when I was there. It's like very, very much like, um, like klezmery and like, uh, I don't know, like chewy romanticism kind of thing, but also has like a lot of like, um, yeah, that klezmery kind of, music russian jewish like um sounding things um but it has some weird cross rhythms and um yeah anyways so they yeah they picked me and then i got a one year and the guy who i replaced is now a lawyer i guess he finished law school at university of michigan and is doing that so uh he's probably in um a great position now um in the year 2020 <laughs> 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 it is it is it is always interesting that that solo rep for a timpani audition because obviously timpani is mostly not a solo instrument it mostly plays in orchestra but the the most interesting one i've heard of those is i think i think he went for it with his chicago symphony audition dave herbert plays stars and stripes forever on timpani and there is if you go on youtube you can find a recording not of dave herbert doing it but of his arrangement of stars and stripes forever on timpani and it is wild <laughs> that's all i can say Oh yeah, I've learned it. It's it's a it's a bear, and I think somebody tried to do it 
at the Spokane audition, and it's just like it's definitely impossible to do on drums that you're playing for the first time, which is something that's like I don't know, maybe well, I guess in percussion and timpani, it's like something very unique to our auditions. It's just like sometimes you walk in and you play your first round, and that is the first time you're touching those instruments. And um, it's yeah, that's a different skill that um, that I wish that we didn't have to um, acquire, but yeah, is, uh, I, only yeah. On the, on that note, I was gonna say, I mean, not only an instrument you're not familiar with, but you could practice with you know ankle action timpani and walk in and their leg action timpani. It's literally an instrument you've never played, perhaps you know it's that's bizarre. And if you walked in to play that arrangement on leg action timpani without practicing that, that you would definitely lose the audition. <laughs> Ben, is now a good time yeah. to ask her about the bar talk? Are you going to do that a little later? Oh, yeah. Can we talk about the bar talks a lot? Have you ever played that? Did you play the timpani part? What was your solution for the crash symbols? <laughs> Standard. Uh, Standard have, question. I don't. I, I wasn't going to go there, Casey, ever... but you asked. I know. I no, I thank you. Yeah, it, keeping a record. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, think I, uh, I think I learned it, but I haven't played it. I saw my teacher do it with Mark, uh, Paul Yonchich and Mark Domalakis did it. And Paul. He like, he's one of those people that's so good. Um, you just like don't even notice. But like, some he doesn't. He's not a he's not a fast mover. But like, that was one time that I'm like, oh, <laughs> like just like zipped around and, and got I guess a couple crashes. Is it at the end or like somewhere in the middle that you have to like go? Yeah, the, and, is it the play the other of, part or something? Uh, for the beginning of the third movement, you have to like play oh, okay. really like kind of small crashes and then immediately go to timpani. It's really really hard transition. Yeah. I use a hi-hat stand. You can put two symbols together and you can just use your hand to crash the hi-hat then go over the timpani. Casey is asking me about that one all the time. I throw them to the sense. partner. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. That makes sense. Hey, okay. I, I was going to ask about, um, um, we we're talking about solo rep and we we're talking, and then Ben was saying like, it's, it's kind of tough to think of timpani as a solo, like a solo recital piece a lot of times and what's some of your favorite rep like if you had to pick some favorites what would you uh what would you pick you mentioned De La Cluz. Could, could I, um, so if i run also the obstacle of also concerti concerti if you have any timpani concerti you like uh i'm gonna throw a controversial opinion out there and say that all of the solo rep for timpani is trash like i love <laughs> timpani i love playing it and i love being in an orchestra but that is not an instrument that i want to hear played solo like <laughs> what uh what, what what do you think's wrong with it like because i i mean i think that is a common opinion like people really struggle with like making that making that work as a solo instrument and you know what do you think a piece could have or have less of or uh, so on and so forth um, I think the things that work well are things like the rock and roll, or what is it, the Raise the Roof concerto, the uh, Michael Doherty um, composition, where it's just like, it's not heavy into the um, um, like uh, melodic things. Like it's it's just not perceivable to the, like a human ear for the first time. Like if you're listening, to like notice the melody and like the. Well, yeah, I guess you can notice phrasing, but it's mostly rhythm-based and, like, um, drummy. Um, and those things seem to work, but anything else that's, like, uh, I don't know, legato or, like, melodic or harmonic or, you know, all those things, like, they don't really work. Um, and uh, I think that's what's the issue with timpani as a solo instrument in orchestra. And really, like, I've learned... For one of my recitals, I did a 17-minute solo piece by, I forget the guy's name, it was Rich, it's called Rituals, Bruce something or other, um, but like, I went back and listened to it, and it's like, it's, I don't know what, what notes I'm playing, I know I played them well, because I remember being like, oh, that was, that went well, um, but otherwise, like, it just sounds like a bunch of rolls and, and 16th notes and stuff um, linked together, and um, compare, you know, if you're comparing that even to a snare drum solo, like, at least with snare drum, you have like some variety and discernible like tone qualities that you can um, synthesize and like take in. Um, whereas with timpani, it's like you're a little bit behind on like taking in like what pitches are being played and what um, like clarity there is because it's so ringing in a hall or like there's so many things that are like getting in the way of hearing what's actually going on. Yeah, I, I played the Doherty Raise the Roof 
a little less than a year ago, actually. And and you're right, it actually it does work very well on Symphony because it's very rhythmic the whole time. And there's there's a lot of pedaling, but he sort of set it up well so you have only two drums that are pedaling at a time. Basically, one drum is pedaling D and E, the other drum is F and G, and then you have an A on another drum. So you've got this sort of one through five and D minor all very conveniently in front of you. But I wanted to give a shout out to to one other timpani piece that I, I don't think really ever gets played these days, uh, Toshi Ishinagi's Rhythm Gradation. But it is terribly, terribly engraved to where each drum has its own line instead of being written on like a like a five line staff. But it's it's super cool, but it just doesn't get played for some reason. It's I think maybe a nice alternative to Carter for like a senior recital or graduate recital, something like that. Do you guys know it's that? Probably probably easily re notated right probably but no one's done it but have, have, do you do any of you guys know that piece it's a cool one heard the name but i've never played it i didn't realize it was notated like that either so i don't think i've laid eyes on it yeah yeah it's uh yeah. i i've thought about playing it but just looking at it, i'm like nah i don't want to do that right now <laughs> i i was pro i probably saw it in like the steve weiss you know timpani solo cat you know i'm like thumbing through and then i went like wait a minute i'm in timpani solos let me get the hell out of here and i went to snare drum <laughs> casey you wrote a, didn't you write a piece for dave herbert no he he mentioned on our episode that the or idea of me, of me he can't afford me though what does he do play for like chicago or whatever <laughs> Dude, i can't what's, what's, the, what's the timpani thing you wrote it wasn't so, just timpani right but you wrote something with timpani. i have like a kind of timpani solo multi-piece where yeah. you, you like puts it's not it doesn't count because you like put crap on the drums and the last the last movement is uh, fairly long and yeah it is kind of a straight ahead timpani solo but I, there's three movements ahead of that with like all sorts of stuff and well I remember seeing s some recording I might have been you might have been someone else that was like working on it that it, I mean it was just like pedal up and down constantly are are they actually notated pitches or is it just like an effect of raising a lowering the pedal I think pr probably the spot you're talking about is just an effect like it's like okay. hey you're on this pitch you know stretch as high as you can and then rip back down to the same okay, I can do that. yeah it's real it's right i can do that yeah yeah it's all stuff i can do yeah my ankle works like that i you know i couldn't hear the pigeons <laughs> i can move a timpani pedal up and down. it's a it's it's a piece i really i really like and i'm very happy with it doesn't get played a lot but it doesn't probably really qualify as just a timpani solo you know yeah there's that also that, that reminds me there's that uh jean pichet steal the thunder it's another like timpani and multi. I would say that's even more of a multi piece than a timpani piece, but cool piece. Cool, with cool, the, cool. The track. Do you want me to do my topic now, Ben? Yeah, sure. So Casey, you had something you were gonna talk about that's very relevant, uh, and at least we're not just talking about what are you doing coronavirus again. It's actually related, but not exactly that. So why don't you tell us about your topic today? Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't know if this com this will lead into an interesting conversation or not. So fingers crossed. But uh, you know, a lot of times our thanks, Ksenia, appreciate that. A lot of times our <laughs> our our listeners they want to know <laughs> what what to do like additionally in their practice, right? And they always say like, okay, I, I understand. I got to get good. That's a very like aimable and tangible target. But they also want to know, like, what else do I need to do for my my upcoming, like, hopes for a job or orchestra job or whatever it might be. And that usually leads us into some kind of conversation about networking and being a, a good peer, being a good colleague. And uh, something we haven't really talked about much, though, is like, what about your, like, you know, deep ingrained friendships that you have with with fellow artists? And so, yeah, networking is like, you know, a very tangible and countable kind of result. I got this gig or I got recommended for this thing or, oh, through networking, I, you know, I got this recommendation. But like, what about like the value of your really, really close friends? And just kind of this curiosity, I bumped into a little article called Why Creatives Need Creative Friends. Uh, musings on a John Singer Sargent exhibit at the Met by Nicole Bianchi. So she's a writer and an author, and she's got a bunch of cool little blog posts that I bumped into. But one of them, she uh, talks about this visit to the Metropolitan Art Museum in New York with a buddy. And they see an exhibit by this uh, American painter named John Singer Sargent, who I guess is uh, 1856 to 1925. And they notice how many of his paintings have fellow artists or writers uh, portrayed in them. And so her and her friend ask each other, you know, do you think that 
He just came from a well-connected, high-society family, and that's why he had so many impressive friends? Or do you think that cre- creative and talented people are like actually drawn to each other? Does talent attract talent? Does artistry attract other artists? Um, so surrounding yourself with other artists who are passionate about the same things you are, like, does that contribute, uh, art artistic, you know, <laughs> flourishing inside of yourself and is what's the benefit to those things. And she kind of just leaves it there. I mean, she doesn't cite any conclusion or anything really, really important, but I know like I've got, yeah, my, my like network of people, but then you've also got like your really, really close friends who you, you get a lot of other things from them. So I thought I would just ask, you know, what, what do you guys think about that? What did you, what, what did, did that stir up any ideas? We know a lot of famous pairs in music, Coco Chanel and Stravinsky, Harrison and Cage. Um, my favorite duo, I, just cause I think the story is so interesting. Hedy Lamar and, uh, and Antiel right? Ballet mechanique and the whole thing with the piano rolls and the torpedo guidance system that she uh, coins and he helps her figure out the missing piece too. And it's just, it, it's so such a neat, neat thing. So I don't know, do you guys have any benefit you feel like you get from your close friends versus just your like regular network? So many. That's why I keep them close is because there are so many benefits. I just want to milk them till they're all gone. <laughs> no, just kidding. You can't hear everybody's laughing. Thank I'm you, laughing. Podcast. I'm laughing. Ha. That was funny. Um, no, I mean, of course, I think uh, when I look back on my life and, you know, seeing the friendships that I've made that I still have that I've made, you know, at the beginning of high school, uh, these are the people who have shaped me because, which is very true. And every professor always says, you know, you learn a lot more from your peers than you do from me because you spend a lot more time with them. And then those really deep relationships, we share so many values and we've gone through so many phases in our lives together that certainly um, they influence me greatly. And because most of them are artists, I get to bounce ideas off of them and I get to have sort of a, a parameter of, oh, wow, look at this friend that's going this this really cool thing let me try to keep up with them or or have a buddy to do something together or whatever um so i think our environments shape us greatly sure sure and i have to say i don't i don't know if i necessarily agree with the premise she presents so like this is always positive because of course artistic friends can be really combative they can be you know, really, really competitive and they can repel each other. You know, I talked about the artist Henry Darger who just worked alone in his apartment, total recluse. Nobody knew he was making any of his art. And, you know, now he's very, very well known. He didn't benefit from any of that during his lifetime. But um, yeah, I mean, being alone was probably super, super important for, for how he did his work. And I don't know if you all remember being a student and maybe you went to PASIC for the first time with your studio. And, you know, I don't know about y'all, but like half the studio came back just pumped and like ready to practice all day, every day. The other half of the studio came back totally bummed out and thinking like just despair and abandon all hope. There's no way I'm going to be this good at percussion. Ben, you want to... <laughs> <laughs> like there's no way I'm going to be able to achieve, you know, any measurable amount of all that's out there and all that I need to do. And I have to say about PASIC, um, I think because sometimes people doing the same thing, it repels each other. PASIC is so fun because it's so hard to bump into someone who's doing like exactly what you're doing. You know, percussion is just too broad for that. It's too wide, you know. Like, I, I mean, it's, it's, there's so few people that I think are built just like I am, you know, like, oh yeah, they're doing everything I am. So I think it's easier for us to be friends in that way. That's yeah. I mean, I, I, I could ramble for a very, very long period about this. And I, I, I think that it definitely comes down to different personality types and different situations where it can be a positive or a negative. I remember when YouTube came out around 2006, seven, something like that. It was the first time that, that. I saw anyone play per percussion like I did, but that did not go to my school. And I, I've said this on the past podcast before, but I came across Casey's YouTube channel. And Casey, I was a graduate student at that point and had these, you know, incredibly fast hands. And I was just, I just remember the thought in my mind was like, 
because I, I didn't know who Casey was. I was like, oh, does does everyone that I don't know play like this? <laughs> <laughs> and thank God they don't. Uh, but that was like a revelation for me, like, oh, God, I need to be able to, to keep up with this guy. Uh, but no, one of my favorite things about undergrad was there was a semester, my, my buddy Mike Yip, who's now a, a doctor, Mike Yip and I had drum set practice rooms across the hall from each other at UNT. And we lived near each other and we both had drum set lessons on Friday mornings. So we'd be up there every Thursday until midnight cramming in practice. And at some point we would share ideas and play for each other. And every Friday morning he would give me a ride over to campus and, and we would have our drum set lessons back to back. It was it was just a wonderful you know friendship that I learned so much from. Um, but Casey was mentioning pairings earlier, and I wanted to mention one other interesting pairing. Casey mentioned John Cage and Lou Harrison, but do you guys know about John Cage and John Lennon? No. So Whoa. No, those are two different bands, Ben. Yeah. They were, <laughs> they were neighbors in New York City. What? And they would talk art, and obviously John Lennon was a pop artist, and John Cage is not. But they and but Yoko Ono was very much in the same vein as John Cage as far as her artistic vision. Uh, and they, yeah, they would they would compare notes. And also, John Lennon was being uh, surveilled by the uh, FBI or CIA, one of the two, for for being a you know a communist. And so when John Lennon needed to use the phone, he would walk across the street to John Cage's house and, and use John Cage's phone. So, <laughs> right. Really, I remember the phone. Yeah. 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 Wow. Um, but is... Megan, you, I think, went to undergrad with uh, someone by the name of Carly. Did you did you guys bounce ideas off of each other? And <laughs> um, That's a great question. I kind of was a dingus in undergrad, <laughs> um, but... Uh, I do. We did overlap for three years, and um, we both did music ed. And um, it was a very small studio when we were there. Um, so, like, you know, it was a small community. I wasn't a huge practicer until kind of my senior year when I studied with the teacher that I had been wanting to study with my entire undergraduate career. And then I finally kind of got the ball rolling there. There was another person that went to Maryland who I connected with kind of after we both graduated, Keith Williams, who plays in Fort Worth. Um, and we've kind of stayed in touch and just kind of pushed each other on the orchestral spectrum um, in terms of like uh, getting ready for auditions or like staying active in like the um, the that orchestral chops community. Um, but uh, through busking, I've actually gotten a lot of networking opportunities. Um, I've had well, I played with Hesus Moore, which is a group, and I met this guy who was like. Uh, mo uh, movie soundtrack producer, like commercial music producer, but also does this like um, really cool ensemble thing where he basically takes what EDM kind of is and puts acoustic instruments to it and kind of composes that way. Um, but I met him on in the Green Market at Union Square in New York, and he was just like, "I have a studio down the street. Do you want to come by later and like play some stuff?" And I had a similar experience with a great comedian who plays. Um, who's a uh, really popular like alternative comic, but he also um, is a writer and uh, actor on Amy Sedaris's show. If you're familiar with anyone listening, is familiar with um, Amy Sedaris, Strangers with Candy, or um, At Home with Amy Sedaris, which is now on. Um, he's a writer on that and uh, plays Chassie Tucker, uh, uh, sassy neighbor. Anyways, um, but I met him. He like wrote me a nice note in my like box and like got to collaborate with him through that. Um, so like definitely like doing something and just like putting myself out there because I'm relatively introverted has been like my way of like sort of connecting with other people. It's just like through playing music physically in front of people and being like, I'm available. <laughs> um, and meeting friends that way has been kind of my method of uh, operation of sorts. That's awesome. And if you ever get to meet Amy and through her, her brother, David, could you please introduce me to him? Cause I love him. Oh my God. He's hilarious. <laughs> Just like amazing. Um, but I was going to ask, it's really interesting that you said that you are an introvert uh, because definitely your performance seems to be so extroverted. You are so open. Could you give us a little piece of advice? Was it a process for you? What do we say to our students who say, well, I'm introverted. I don't want to put up a show or whatever. I just feel uncomfortable around humans staring at me. What What do we do? Uh, well, that was kind of my solution is like I have or like when I started or before I started busking, I was like, I have performance anxiety. Like I have nerves. I don't like 
like introducing myself to like random strangers like let me just go out and play some music and maybe they'll introduce themselves to me and I can like handle that much at least <laughs> and from there start a conversation um because they're talking about I don't have to talk about myself I can just show them what I do um in that sense and but like obviously like I had a lot like I took a I t- took a xylophone from CIM they didn't know that I took and I took it on a bus to New York, like, the anxiety levels were at an all-time high, but it worked, like, I guess it paid off in some way, so there's definitely a price for for doing those things, but it obviously, like, pays off uh, tenfold with, like, the opportunities that you can get from things. There's no guarantees, but um, for someone like me who doesn't like being like, oh, I'm really good at this, I'd, you know, it, it worked in, in being a show, uh, shower, not teller sort of situation well i i just had an interesting perspective on this to add if you listen to the podcast you may very well think that i'm an extrovert but if you've ever shared an awkward elevator ride with me at PASIC, you'll know that i'm definitely an introvert oh uh, yes <laughs> i i heard this thing that, that made so much sense to me and you would think of a performer up on stage as wanting to be an extrovert and and you know being loud and sharing what they have to offer but actually if you think about it if there's a soloist on stage and there's a crowd in the audience, the stage is actually a very solitary, lonely experience. Uh, and there's this, this thing I've heard that introverts like being a soloist on stage and extroverts like playing in an orchestra because you're part of a, a large group. So I don't think that being a performer necessarily means introverted or extroverted. I think it's the whether you prefer to perform alone or in a group of people that, that can mm. determine which one you, you know, fall into. My two cents on it, but yeah. Also, if I'm ever in the elevator with anyone at PASIC, I'm sorry, I'm just awkward in person. Oh, it's the worst. <laughs> How many elevators? I always take the stairs. Like, Ben's here, I'm taking the stairs. <laughs> Actually, if I can just share a funny little anecdote, not about that, but uh, elevators at PASIC. When I was an undergrad, we played at you at, at uh, PASIC, and uh, there was this guy, Sam, and we were on, like, the 18th floor of a hotel or something like that, and I don't know why, just being an idiot, completely joking. I was like, I'll race you to the bottom. So I like run down the stairs and Sam gets in the elevator and I won. I got there first and I was all happy. I'm like huffing and puffing in front of the elevator. And then the doors open and I see <laughs> Sam and I see Gordon Stout. And Sam turns to Gordon and goes, it was very nice to talk to you. And he walks out. I was like, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> so I would have talked to Gordon in the elevator at that point in my life anyway. But yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. My teacher... My original teacher from Utah, Dennis Griffin, shared an elevator ride with uh, John Cage. Yeah, and and I guess he got some cool cool insight that that we don't always hear about. But um, wow. hey, we do Megan. have one. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was just gonna ask Megan who was the coolest person that you missed an elevator ride with or or had one with. I think well. I don't know about elevators. I the first time I finished busking, I ended up right behind uh, Jesse Tyler Ferguson in a line to go like get tickets or something, and that oh, was nice. just like a weird like. <laughs> but I was like so embarrassed <laughs> because I had like one dollar bills falling out of my pocket that um, I usually just try and run and hide at that point. Plus, um, well, you had the horse head on, so. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know. <laughs> Our buddy Greg Reinhardt just asked, "How did you get into timpani playing?" Out of, I mean, I assume you started in percussion, just like we all do, but then at some point you, you know, you zeroed in on timpani. How did that happen, and where'd that interest come from? Um, my teacher basically was like, "Hey, you could be a timpanist," and I was like, "Well, that's nice. Like, let me try that a little bit more." So I think just the confidence from like having someone be like, "Oh, this is you're doing well at this," was all that was needed. <laughs> So just kind of spiraled from there. Well, on, on that note, yeah, I might have just sort of answered this question already, but we had uh, several episodes ago, uh, John Tafoya on the podcast, and he talked about growing up in the St. Louis area, and I can't remember the, the timpanist of the St. Louis Symphony at the time, I can't remember his name, but John basically said, yep. yeah, and yeah, he said there were so many of us, so many timpanists that that watched him play and were so inspired by his playing and so many of us are successful these days and i know john haas is also from st louis area i'm sure that was a similar role model for him did you have any any or i guess i could just ask who is your timpani role model and if it was john tafoya at the beginning could you tell us what inspired you about him uh <laughs> i mean well not to like 
I obviously I'm sure like John is a great timpanist. Um, I was not great about like going to see concerts and stuff in undergrad and I didn't really get a concept for like playing timpani until the end of undergrad. So I didn't study with him. Um, I studied almost exclusively with Paul Jancic and I've taken a lesson with like Javon Gilliam with Ed Stefan, with like a ton of other players who are all great. Um, I would say Paul Jancic is definitely up there and Cloyd Duff and, um, Dave Herbert really taking a few lessons with him as well. Um, but I love those players and it really, you know, it all depends on the orchestra. I think that matters more the way that timpanist interacts with an orchestra and the way that they like, you know, put together moments, you know, there's quiet moments and then there's big moments, both which can involve timpani pretty heavily. And, and the way those things are balanced is, is really what's um, uh, powerful, I guess, to, to listen to. So I guess, you know, there's, I wouldn't, I mean, I guess the Cleveland style is pretty, um, pretty much my uh, goal as a player, but um, when it comes, like, it's obviously depends piece to piece um, what, what things are the most compelling, I guess. On that note, also, I was going to ask, sorry, like generic question, but what's what's your like favorite timpani moment in an orchestra, like Mahler five or you know something? <laughs> That's a good. Okay, I do love. Okay, there's a moment. It's always like usually just we're we're like truly playing the bridesmaid to like somebody else's like big solo moment. Um, it's like Mahler five second movement. There's like a really beautiful cello moment that we just have a soft roll in. Um, there's probably, uh, what else am I thinking of? Favorite timpani stuff. I haven't played Mahler 7 yet, but I'm sure that would be a real big party. We were supposed to play Mahler 2 before the um, the COVID happened. Uh, that that would be uh, amazing to do that with a, another good timpanist playing, you know, with double, double sets of drums and stuff. Um, all the big, like, Strauss stuff is, is my favorite. Like, all of that, like, High, like emo like teenage drama like romantic music is is very much like fun to play um timpani wise because everybody's just going going nuts in the um the high drama moments and then then like the sentimental moments it's it can be really really um like goosebumpy i guess is a word to describe it <laughs> I yeah I just wanted to add one other this is one that most people don't know I think but the uh the William Schumann New England triptych the first movement especially it starts with the timpani solo and there's this really loud raucous part sort of extended timpani solo later that's that's one of the ones that I think more people should know <laughs> yeah it's it's so frequent like I mean if you look at like an orchestral list what's funny is if you look at a percussion list like William Schumann is so popular but no orchestra plays that music I mean maybe New England Triptych is the most popular but like he's done so much rep that is popular in auditions but nowhere else yeah it's, uh, <laughs> with the academic festival overture it's such a such a cool uh, check that one out <laughs> Nerding out here. Anyway, uh, we're going to dedicate attention now to our younger listeners who follow us on Instagram. Thank you so much for being there. And uh, we have a question from DJ Orson Beats with a Z. Um, how do you balance timpani practice with all the xylophone rags that you do? Well, um, timpani is about like career goals and like long-term success. And xylophone is about like, what am I going to do to make a dollar today? Which like, it's just like, I, I do have a, the benefit of having a pretty good long-term memory. And a lot of the rags that I play are kind of very much entrenched in that. Um, with COVID, I did learn a bunch of new ones, which I am learning that I did not memorize correctly um, in some forms <laughs> uh, on the street this week. But, um, but really it's like, that's a fun project and, and timpani, like when an audition comes up, which is like, you know, usually my high um, activity season, it's all about um, learning the rep, but then also like constantly being self-aware and like recording. It's just like a huge, mock audition fest in my apartment which uh a fun fact for all of you listeners and readers of the podcast i have uh set a timpani in a studio apartment that i uh i live in a building with all musicians thank god but um they deserve all of uh all of my money when i become successful um after enduring all of my audition prep over the coming years oh uh, yeah so <laughs> Studio apartment in a studio, studio apartment. apartment. Have, so do you sleep right under them? Basically, 
Uh, that's, that's generally the vibe, yeah. That's yeah. awesome. You, you've got what it takes. If you if you're not <laughs> successful and you can't buy that whole building in ten years, I don't know what's going to happen of this world. So you know, we we had Chris Devini on the podcast recently. We were actually really haven't talked too much about auditions, but Chris Devini talked about when he worked at Steve Weiss Music. Steve Weiss had this Chris's wall of failures, and every audition he took that he didn't win was written on the wall. Do you do you keep track like that? Does that keep you inspired that you you know you came that close or something like that? I, yeah, the, the, when I do well, I feel better, but like listing like the number of auditions as, as time goes on, I'm like, Oh God, like, <laughs> am I learning anything from, you know, the slew of, cause sometimes you just have a slew of like, not, you know, getting cut all together. When I first moved to Spokane, like I just, I, well, I didn't have access to Timpani. So that was a huge problem. And like, I was like, why am I not advancing? Like, duh, you don't have anywhere to practice like so you you had those like lulls sometimes but um but yeah sometimes it can be encouraging to like at least have some consistent like small successes um and keeping track of those and what you can do better because I mean really you only you know if you only have two practical applications of this kind of test per year like it's it can be really difficult to to gain momentum um as I'm sure many if anybody um out there is auditioning listening to this uh, you know relatable content here. <laughs> well, Megan, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a wonderful hour and we look forward to seeing everyone on episode 252.